Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoya, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of camel withers. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with slats having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazel that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom disregarding a, threat, a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with the sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Timon that will consume the fortresses of Bozar. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Amon, even for four, I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Reba that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent, because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods of their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses from maybe damaging their eardrums. Uh, but because the roar of Mufasa was the roar from a powerful lion, a warning to his enemies of what might come their way unless they heed the warning of the roar, lest they suffer the might and power of the king. And today, as we begin our nine-week series on Amos, we're also going to hear the roar of a lion. But it's not the roar of a fictional lion or pride land, but the roar of the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, the one and only and holy God. And when God roars, we can either experience it from Simba's place, from Simba's point of view, where God's roar is a roar of protection against our enemies, against his enemies. 
or we can experience it from the hyena's point of view where God's roar is a terrible warning of what might come our way. We see this in Amos chapter 3 verse 8. Have a look at, uh, turn to Amos chapter 3 verse 8. Amos tells us the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Like the hyenas in the Lion King, you don't want to find yourself on the receiving end of the lion's wrath. For the roar of God isn't a laughing matter, but a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And so as we study this part of Scripture together, we need to remember that it's not going to be easy because the message of the prophet Amos is the roar of a lion, the roar of God himself that will instill fear in us, fear that should lead us to repentance and faith so that we might stand on the right side of the lion's roar with Simba and not on the wrong side of the lion's roar with the hyenas. And that's the blessing of Scripture, isn't it? For the Sovereign Lord has spoken. His roar is a warning so that we might find ourselves on his right side. And so who's this prophet Amos? Was he a graduate of the University of Jerusalem or a scholar amongst the king's company? Well, let's start now from chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. Now, Amos wasn't anyone out of the ordinary. He wasn't particularly special. He was a shepherd from Tekoa, a town 17 kilometers south of Jerusalem in the nation of Judah, a small rural town. Now, even though he belonged in the kingdom of Judah in the south, he was a prophet to the king, kingdom of Israel in the north. You see, at this time in Israel's history, it was around 750 BC. He's a contemporary of Isaiah the prophet, for example. Uh, it's almost about 3,000 years ago from today. Now, at this time in Israel's history, it had already been split into two. You have Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Because of Solomon's sin, God split the nation into two. Now, history tells us that at this time, Israel, the northern kingdom, was wealthy, politically stable, secure and strong. In fact, King Jeroboam II was a great military king. And if you combine the borders of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah at this time, it was almost as extensive as the time of King Solomon. So it was a great period of prosperity for the Israelites. There's relative peace. The stock market's up. GDP is climbing. The housing market is doing great. And as a nation, Israel is doing really well. Standing living is high and the people are happy. But then almost out of the blue comes Amos, this prophet from the south, this shepherd who is also God's prophet, God's spokesperson to God's people in Israel in the north. Verse 2, he said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. And so if you're an Israelite and you're hearing the roar of your God 
from God's temple in Zion, in Jerusalem, in the south, and if the pastures are drying up, which means your sheep are going to die, and the economy is going to tank, and the top of Carmel withers, which was where people gathered to offer child sacrifices to the idol Baal and to participate in all sorts of ritualistic prostitution, that your ears are going to perk up and you pay close attention because there's something going on with your economy and with the religion of the day. And so what's God's prophet Amos going to say? What is God's message for God's people at this time? Well, Amos begins by speaking against the seven nations that borders Israel at that time. From the north to the south and east to the west. If you're an Israelite and you hear these first words from Amos, you'd be ecstatic, you'd be thrilled. You'd feel like God's on your side, like Simba as God roars at the seven nations around you because these seven nations at one time or another were your enemies and continue to be your enemies. And there's a refrain that Amos continues to, 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 to say. You might have noticed it when Sarah read the Bible passage. Let me, let me remind you from verse 3. This is what the Lord says, and this is the refrain. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus or Gaza or Tyre, even for four, I will not re- relent. For three sins, even for four, I will not relent. For three sins, even for four, I will not relent. This, this refrain continues to repeat as Amos looks at one country to another country. And, and so what does this mean? Well, what does this refrain mean? Well, certainly it doesn't mean that each city or each country that he's referring to has only sinned three or four times. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that. It's an idiom. And the idiom means you've gone one step too far. You've committed one too many sins. God who is patient and slow to anger is now roaring as a lion because he's run out of patience. He's been withholding judgment, but now he's about to pounce because you've taken your sin one step too far. Now earlier this year you'd know that Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, some people believe it's justified. But for most, especially informed world leaders, it has been condemned as an unjust and an illegal act of war. Russia had no right to invade Ukraine and no basis to attack a peaceful country. But even if for whatever reason you happen to agree that Russia had a right to invade Ukraine, surely firing cluster bombs, which are basically bombs that explode, and then smaller bombs explode from that to kill as many people in the vicinity as possible shouldn't have been done. It is one step too far. After all, cluster bombs are banned by the UN's Geneva Conventions. It's an illegal firearm that should never be used in any circumstances And if that's not enough, surely bombing villages and towns, including shopping centers where everyday civilians are going about their day-to-day business is one step too far. Or or take what happened during World War II. Not only did Hitler establish the Third Reich, 
asserted the superiority of the Aryan master race, approved the formation of killing squads, ordered the mass murder of Jews in gas chambers, established concentration camps as places for human experimentation, from freezing experimentations to breaking bones and deliberately causing head injuries in the name of science. Even you and I would say that Hitler had gone one step too far. So what is it that these seven countries that border Israel have done? How have they gone too far? Well, let me take, briefly take you through it. There are lots of countries, so let's be brief. So Damascus is addressed first, which is the capital city of Syria, the nation to the north of Israel. Verse 3, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Now Gilead was a southern neighbor to Damascus, to Syria, and when they fought, Syria won the war. But they didn't leave it at that. In ancient times, to, to get grain and wheat, people tied iron and rock with rope. And then they'll drag those rope, uh, the rope so that the iron and rock will crush the grain and break it apart, threshing it. That's the imagery, that's the picture of what Damascus has done to Gilead. They've cut open the bodies of their enemies and tore their flesh from their limbs. It was one step too far. And so God pronounces his judgment on Damascus in verse 4. Amos then turns to Gaza from verse 6, the chief city of the Philistines, and Ty from verse 9, which is modern-day Lebanon. They had both been victorious at battle. But it wasn't enough to defeat their enemies. They went into the slave trade business as well, selling entire communities off as slaves, not just soldiers and warriors, but civilians, men, women, and children, sold off as slaves for profit. It was one step too far. And so God pronounces his judgment on Gaza in verse 7 and Ty in verse 10. Edom's next in line. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, the half-brother, the twin, uh, the, the brother, sorry, the twin of Jacob, you might remember from early this year. And their problem was a lack of compassion and uncontrolled rage. It was one step too far. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. And so God pronounces his judgment on Edom in verse 12. Amos then turns to the Ammonites in verse 13, which is modern-day Jordan to the south, and the Moabites in chapter 2, verse 1. Just like the nations before, they were found guilty of terrible war crimes. The Ammonites for killing unborn children by ripping apart pregnant women. The Moabites for humiliating the dead by turning the bones of the king of Edom into lime. It was one step too far. And so God pronounces his judgment of the Ammonites in verse 14 and the Moabites in chapter 2, verse 2. Amos then turns to his own country, to the nation of Judah, the seventh on the list. Chapter 2, verse 4 to 5. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. Now, surprisingly, Judah's going to be judged just like the other nations. But unlike the other nations, 
Judas not judged because of war crimes they've committed. Judas judged for rejecting God's law. They haven't kept his word. They haven't lived according to scripture. They've committed idolatry, which is as bad as committing terrible and horrendous war crimes. It was one step too far. And so God pronounces his judgment on Judah in chapter 2, verse 5. As Amos spoke these words of judgment, Israel must have been jumping with joy. Yes, my enemies are going to be punished by God. He must be on our side. We're the Simba in this situation, and they're all hyenas. God's roaring at them and not at us. They're terrible sinners. We're saints. But to their surprise, Amos then turns to Israel herself. And God roars at his own people. Like their enemies, they aren't immune to God's judgment. And like the other nations, they have taken their sins one step too far. Verse 6, chapter 2. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. And so what's their crime? What have they done that deserve God's judgment as well? Well, Gaza and Tai might have been in the slave trade business of people from other nations. But Israel took it one step further. They were selling their own people into slavery for close to nothing in verse 6. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Edom might have mistreated their enemies, but Israel mistreated their own people by oppressing the poor and denying them justice. Verse 7. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Judah might, might have been led astray by false gods, but Israel worshipped pagan gods through gross sexual immoral practices. Verse 7, Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their god, they drink wine taken as fines. But see, Israel should have known better. God destroyed the Amorites for their idolatry, yet Israel now lived like the Amorites themselves. Verse 9, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were as tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. And this wasn't the first time God has called them back. He had sent them prophets, yet instead of listening to God's prophets, they corrupted God's prophets. Verse 11, I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made that Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Israel had gone one step too far. And so the sovereign Lord has roared, not just against Israel's enemies that border her, but to Israel herself, and no one can escape God's judgment. Verse 13, Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. Horsemen will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. No one will escape. When God pounces, when God lays down his judgment, when God punishes even God's people. 
Now, it's pretty full on, isn't it? And as we read through Amos, we might feel like, well, this is actually really foreign to us. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of war crimes being committed here for slave trading, for cruelty to, uh, to humans and dead or alive. But as Australians, or at least residents in Australia, these sins are so foreign to us. Uh, we're not at war. Ukraine might be at war, but we're not at war, so we, we can't commit any war crimes, so surely we'd be safe from God's judgment. We're not in the business of oppressing the poor. We sponsor children and give to the poor, so surely we're okay. We're good people. We might be tempted to think that they've gone too far. Absolutely, they actually deserve God's judgment. What they've done is horrendous and horrible, but surely... We're okay. Surely we haven't committed one sin too many. We haven't gone too far. No one at the church has ever tapped me on the shoulder and said, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of David, even for four, I will not relent. So have I gone one step too far? Surely not. Surely I'm safe. Surely God's raw won't roar at me. I, I, I'm the Simba. I'm not, I'm not the hyenas. I, I'm the goody. I'm not the baddie. So the question then is this. How, how do we know whether we'd be in trouble when we see God face to face or whether we'll be embraced by him with open arms? Israel thought that everything was great. They were prosperous. They were thriving. They thought that they had God's blessings. But then God turned and roared at them. Will that happen to us? You see, where's the line to say that we've overstepped, that we've sinned one too many times, that we've gone too far? Is it if we commit murder? Is it if we steal over, say, $5,000? Uh, but if we only stole lollies as a kid, then we'd be okay. Is it when we at least go to church for Easter and Christmas, then we'd be okay? I mean, we all have different standards, don't we? And we all have different standards of what's right and wrong. Even in the conflict, with the conflict in Ukraine, we've seen people divided on whether it's justified or not. So, so who's right? How do we know? Well, the passage that helps me and hopefully helps you too to have some perspective is Romans chapter 2, a letter that Paul wrote. He tells us that God doesn't show favoritism, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you know God's law or you don't know God's law, whether, whether you know God or not. Because there's a moral standard that God expects. These, these, the six countries that bordered Israel, they were not God-fearers. They were not God's people, but they deserve God's judgment because there is a level of expectation that God has on all people, a moral code, as it were, a moral standard. And we know that, for we all have a conscience. And we know that we can't even live to our own moral code, our own conscience, that little voice in us that tells us what's right and wrong. And if we can't even live to our own moral standards and our own moral code and to listen to our conscience every time, then how can we ever say that we've met God's moral law 
and God's standard for the way we treat each other, for the way we live our lives. So Paul in Romans chapter 2 from verse 11 says, For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And that's the case, isn't it? With Damascus, with Tyre, and so forth. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. And that's what we saw happen with Judah and Israel. You see, if the secrets of our hearts were laid bare and the life we've lived was aired on TV for everyone to see, and if we were honest and even honest judges of our own lives, of our own character, we'd have to say that we don't cut it. We're not good enough even according to our own standards, let alone God's. And so God will judge us. And it will happen when Jesus returns. So Romans 2.16, Paul continues, This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. But there is good news. Because in the same gospel that Paul declares, is that the lion who roars is also the lamb who was slain. The one who will judge is also the one who will save. And so just as Israel and her neighbours had to heed Amos's warning, so must we. We must repent, we must go to the foot of the cross, we must seek forgiveness from our Creator, our Maker, the Sovereign Lord. We must listen to the roar of the lion today and obey His word now. Because we don't want to find ourselves in Israel's position when God's patience runs out and Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead and find ourselves on the wrong side of the roar of God. After watching The Lion King as a little boy, lions became my favourite animal and still is. And one of my childhood dreams, my bucket list, was to go on an African safari. There was no other place I wanted to visit more than to see real lions out in the wild. And while I'm there, maybe I could even visit the elephant graveyard. That's a joke. It doesn't exist, I think. <laughs> but now that I'm an old man, as my children well know, I, I haven't had the opportunity to go on a safari. My dream's no longer to go on an African safari, though it would be nice. To see lions out in the wilderness roaring their way around. My dreams now to see the lamb who was slain instead. And I pray that it is yours too.